Welcome to the People's Countryside Environmental Debate Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is William Manclo, co-host of this podcast, and usually alongside me would be Stuart the Wild Man Mabbott. But we are going to be taking the month of December off, or at least stepping back a little bit from our usual release schedule. We will still be releasing episodes uh, twice a week on Sundays and Tuesdays at 10am or Tuesdays and Sundays at 10am, which I always like to joke about, depending on when you start your week. But this month, or during December, I should say, we're going to be doing a series called December Reflections, where Stuart and I both look back at past episodes of this show. We're picking four each. We're taking in turns as well. So whatever episode this is, um, you'll be able to listen to the next one. It'll be Stuart's pick and Stuart's, so Stuart's choice. So one that I've gone for, I think it's a pretty obvious one, actually. We're going to be playing this after this recording, after this introduction, is the first ever episode of this show. The first, very first iteration of this podcast, which was released on the 21st of July 2019. It had uh, Pete Hughes, who, as a guest, who was at that time working for the Oxford Mail. The topics we discuss within this episode, very human-centric, uh, based upon our effect on the, on the planet. Um, and I just find it fascinating to be able to go back to that first ever episode. And maybe you haven't listened to it yourself. Maybe you haven't actually, um, maybe you've only just recently found this podcast. Um, so... Yeah, this is this episode. This is the first episode of this podcast. This is where it all began. Welcome to the People's Countryside podcast. Thanks for being with us. We will debate three important environmental issues per episode with a special guest. we'll be dealing with serious world-scale problems. We approach each question in an open and friendly manner, as though we're sat together in a pub talking with friends. Our ultimate aim is to take this idea on stage in front of a live audience as the People's Countryside live and unscripted. So sit back and listen as the conversation unfolds. And remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter where you can share a question you'd like us to discuss and also find out more about our wider work at thepeoplescountryside.co.uk. Okay, so here we are. It's me, Stuart the World Man Mabber, and me, William Mankelow, and we are hosting the very first The People's Countryside podcast. And we have a guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? I will. My name is Pete Hughes, and I'm from the Oxford Mail. Okay, and we are going to be debating three tough nature environmental questions. Do you want to pose your first one, William, and then we will 
go from there? Yeah, well, each question is from all, each of us individually, right? So, um, which one was mine, by the way? Let's have a look. I think my, my, mine was the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, that's why I've given it. That's I why wrote, I've given him the piece of paper. I wrote it. Well, you should have put my name next to it. Mm. I, wrote, I wrote it down. I just had a question in my head, and I can't remember what it was. Now. So, the question I have here is how much. How much effect do humans have on other animals' survival? Are we causing more extinction than before? Okay. Before I want to start by asking, why did you ask that question? Why was that the one you picked? I asked it because it, there's always been extinction in the world. You know, it, it, it's like it's, there's no exact figure on it, but I have heard I have heard at least 99% of all animals that have existed up to this point. Uh, have, are extinct. Mm, I've are definitely we, heard that. Are we causing more extinction now by our activity, or is it that we that it's just a little bit more than the background normal background level of extinction? And are we keeping animals alive that are actually we probably shouldn't be? I like the question: Are we keeping animals alive that we shouldn't be? You mean through conservation? Yeah. I always think that's such an interesting point. What, like reintroductions? You mean? No, 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 I always think about the giant panda. No, I understand mm. it. The, the, the habitat that they are they are actually promoting for the giant panda helps a lot of other creatures. But mm. giant panda in particular is quite a uh, it's a creature that actually well it doesn't doesn't help itself, does it? No, you know, it doesn't. No, it doesn't reproduce very well. But what do you what do you think? I think it's an interesting question. I mean, because the, the giant panda's a bit of an evolutionary dead end, isn't it? You sort of feel if it weren't for humans, it would have it would have run its course by now. Mm. Mm. Okay, so really what we're saying is, um, are we causing more... Um, what do you call it? Um, extinctions. Well, I think we've got a hand in it. We're involved in it. But the word causing is a big one. Um, I think we have to look at it on individual species level, not just blanket level. So is it we're causing some animals, the entire reason why an animal goes out of existence is because of us, mm. for multiple reasons, or it could be that we're the last... We, we, the last straw. The last straw. Mm. That could also be that animals, sometimes we see an animal that's been extinct, we think it's our fault, we think we've made that animal disappear, but it could actually have been something that would have happened naturally anyway. And also the question is, are we part of the, natu the natural world anyway? I was told in university that human beings had um, prompted what, what they called the sixth great period of mass extinction on the earth. Um, and that was in huge part due to colonialism and a, and a big part of that was going around the world in ships and carrying rats, for example. So when we took rats to mm. where was islands like Polynesia or well, any 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 island, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, and they sort of they carry diseases, but then they also predate, don't they? Mm. So I guess in that sense, I mean that's a sort of spread that might have happened naturally, but that we, but that we catalyzed, mm. that we sped up. But we're separating ourselves from animals. We're saying, are we humans uh, causing animals to, mm. uh, other animals uh, struggle to survive in extinctions? Mm. Well, we are nature. We're not separate to nature. We are nature. So is nature causing the, mm. the destruction? Is, is mm. it, or, or is it conscious by us? 
Is it a conscious decision by us? Well, we are the, the, the top species in the planet, aren't we? So we are, we're very paranoid. That's, that's an anthropocentric uh, view though, isn't it? Because dolphins might say they're the top species on the planet. But I mean, we can dominate our environment a lot more than, we, we can dominate many more environments than a dolphin can, for example. So a dolphin can't, so. can't I guess. be on land. It can't, we can't be in the sea. Can't fly. We can, we can. Not, not without, but we have evolved to actually yeah. create tools to be able to do pretty much anything it, that's true if if we're we're not sustainable though mm. what humans yeah if humans aren't sustainable yeah in the way we live uh, how can we say we're the top species mm. i like that that's a good question if we make ourselves extinct for example by global warming well there's always going to be a top species isn't there yeah but who's there to say we're the top be? species now what about cockroaches by the, by the criteria i just put down that we actually have being able to develop our own tools, develop higher thinking, higher reasoning, develop... Um, but I mean, again, like your, your judgment that developing tools or having a higher reasoning or, or being conscious, like any of these things make us the top species, that's anthropocentric as well, isn't it? Because cats, cats like get all the benefits that humans get. They can do everything we can, but they get us to do all the work, don't they? Like I feed my cats, they they can go with me anywhere in the world on ships. They can go up skyscrapers. They but, can. But if I left my cat now, I mean, like yeah. I left that house and moved to another house, what would that cat do? Wouldn't be able to do anything. They wouldn't be able to get out of the house. Well, I don't know. I That's watched true. Red Dwarf, and uh, there, there was a cat that was yeah. stuck in the air vent for a million years, and he turned three out, million, yeah, three, three million, million years. And look what happened. And to it him. evolved. Yeah, yeah, evolved. Yes, he was a well-dressed cat. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you know what I don't think is sensible, do you? Anyway, we have somebody else in the, in the room with us. We have uh, a my co intern from Oxford University called Kate Coley. Coley? Collie. Collie, yeah. Okay, come around the other side of the microphone. Well, at least I'm not calling her Megan. Like I mm. Kate Collie. Well, what do you think about that question? So the question is, how much effect do humans have on other animal survival? And are we causing more extinction than before? Um, yeah, well, I'd say certainly we are, without a question, causing more extinctions than in the past. Because, like um, uh, you were all saying before, there have been past mass extinctions. There have been five in the past. But it's argued that today it's we're going into the sixth mass extinction. But And the difference between the past five extinctions that we've seen in the past and the one today is so the rate at which it's happening and the rate at which humans are kind of dominating and controlling the planet and negatively impacting other organisms is what's leading to these extinctions. And so I'd say that definitely we are causing like a large amount of destruction and ultimately leading to extinctions. Mm. There's certainly more of us than a lot of other species, aren't there? There's, in terms of, well, maybe not, maybe no. not in terms of numbers, no? I said, well, if Fair you think few of, ants knocking around, yeah. it's true, yeah. <laughs> think of any of the smaller insects or yeah. anything like that that outnumber us by By a long way. <laughs> in, insects, um, you know, they're, they're in swarms of millions sometimes. Yeah. So I think they would outnumber us so by it's not. So it's not just down to numbers? No. Mm. I often, often think it's down to a bit of a fluke of nature, really. And then mm. the reason why we've ended up the way the way we are having this conversation in a way, you know, this is no other animal has this mm. conversation yeah. and needs to talk about it, you know. And I'm sure dolphins don't sort of like fret over 
other animals being extinct, do they? No. Um, maybe they do, I don't know, but you know, just give an example. But ants definitely don't fret over. You know, I was, I was, in, Finland, I was in Finland a couple of weeks ago and uh, there was this, this path of it, this really big ant nest, and the ants were just walking across across in front of us. They, didn't, they weren't even aware of our, uh, our, our existence. Mm. Because well, we assume so, they weren't. Well, we're so big. Mm. You know, we're so big and so vast. We're almost like a, almost like a mountain to them, like a hill to them. You know, we see a hill and we don't see it as a, a mm. thing, do we? And we move, probably move so quickly in their time frame. Mm. They probably didn't even notice we're there. Okay, question two. Uh, is human existence always at a cost to nature? And is, as, and is talking about how bad the state of nature is really making a difference? Megan. Megan? <laughs> Kate. <laughs> yeah. Next time I have an intern, she'll be called Kate. Okay. You know. um, I'd say it's not always uh, negative, that the impact that humans are having. Obviously, I'd say the, the dominant impact that, as a species, we're having on the planet is negative. But certainly through processes and actions, like conservation actions and initiatives like cut out by organisations like the World Wildlife Fund and things like that, they are really putting in a lot of effort and action into conserving parts of the world and nature that uh, we value today as important. But obviously that leads to more questions of what we value as important and whether that is what we should be conserving and things like that. Pete? What's the question again? The question is, is human existence always at a cost to nature? Mm. And is talking about how bad the state of nature is mm. really making a difference? I think talking about it makes a difference, doesn't it? You have to have the conversations in the mm. first place to get an idea for what you want to change, what, what we value. I was at an event once at the National Geographic Society in London and... Uh, it was a, a talk with a lot of movers and shakers about the environment. And when we left there, the person I'd gone with said to me, you know, we sat and talked about that for two hours, mm. but does it make a difference? Mm. And, um, you know, knowledge is quite powerful. Mm. You know, and we can choose to make a difference with that knowledge. Mm. That's very true. I was also thinking a connection to nature is a massive thing. I'm thinking about my own experience that really, really why I like natural world and want to help it if you know if for a better phrase mm -hmm. it's because i was c connected with it a very from a very young age really from before i could probably remember really my, my mum used to take me out into, into nature and i think that connection if you can make a connection especially with your local local wildlife and your local the local mm. nature you, yeah that can make i wonder if there's an argument the question is whether talking about it makes a difference but i wonder whether there's an argument that rather than just talking about it maybe sort of experience it experiencing it like you were saying actually going out into wild mm. environments yeah. into the woods or into fields mm. or whatever can maybe have more of an impact like the things you do mm. yeah before if, this podcast i was saying that my work is about making the environment and nature relevant to people's daily life so hopefully they all protect it, which is what you're sort of saying. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, so much of human population is in urban areas these days, isn't it? Mm, um, mm. In cities or towns. Even if you grow up in a village, you know that's a that's a human environment, isn't mm, it? And yeah. it's not. It does. It's not the same as spending time in a natural environment, wherever it might be. And you can't. You can't tell someone 
why they should care about nature, can you really, at the yeah. end of the day? I mean, you can try, but until they've actually been out and seen what is in the world, in the yeah. natural environment, been exposed to it is it a case of also that what you might lose as well so you know there's going to be a develop mm. there's going to be a housing development if you mm. don't really know what's on that land and whether that housing development is going to be put yeah you don't really care do you yeah you know the only thing you're really going to care about is you know what's the traffic going to be like maybe yeah but if you know that there's going to be even if it's something really common mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be anything really majorly like endangered or uh, rare species sure uh, it can just might, be something beautiful. Yeah, like a nice appreciate. pond, a nice little forest you walk through on a yeah. daily basis and you see these different animals and you, yeah. Yeah, I think just learning an appreciation for the kind of the actions that the, the nature and wildlife around you does for humans. So the services that the ecosystem may provide to those living in that habitat. Mm. Um, like kind of, if you just think of trees, then produ- um, they, they provide habitats for other organisms which may then kind of lead to more pollinators being in the local area and then more plants and the kind of the, f- the way it works around the habitat and the ecosystem really is important and I think if you don't have an appreciation for that you can very easily just kind of see your local area and habitat as something that isn't extraordinary and isn't worth protecting yeah while you know it certainly is i remember one of the the things that opened my eyes at university most was learning about the effect that monocultures have you know like in farming because you might assume that if you've got a farmer's field full of plants whatever it is like barley or wheat or whatever that's a good thing because it's like an it's a natural thing it's a plant so that's okay for animals you know it's better than housing or whatever but that's entirely not the case because you need, like you were saying, different like trees, different species yeah. of trees, different types of plants all provide different habitats, and you need the biodiversity, and and it's yeah. those it's those like interwoven services, isn't it? I was gonna say it's a bit like saying, oh, I want butterflies in my garden, therefore mm. I will grow a buddleia. Mm. Though you might get butterflies, but you'd only get a certain type of butterflies. That's sure. taken from your talk there. Yeah, I know, he's <laughs> nicking stuff from my talk. <laughs> but, you know, you'd, you know, having a real proper meadow, and I go back to when I was in Finland, that um, there was, um, I did some lawn mowing for my mother-in-law in Finland, and uh, I did all the bits, and she just said, I want this bit left, because it had mm. all different types of flowers on it, mm. she said, I want it for the bees. Mm. And that's what I learned, we just left it there. And it was mm. just that, having that area where it's just, not just one type of plant, it was several different, you could definitely tell there was many different types of flowers, and it would just, wouldn't be just for bees, it would be for any sort of insects. And of course, when you have the insects, and you've got the birds, and you've got the birds, you've got the, 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 anything that preys on them, etc., 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 piece of feedback. Loop. I think for a long time, we maybe thought that you could just have a green space and that would sort of tick the box for being mm. environmental but that's yeah. not the case is it that's what makes up green what i was just mm. thinking as well though it seems that a lot of people even now in their gardens the front gardens in particular don't even have a green space they don't even have yeah. that they have mm. like just concrete and that's just that's just terrible it's mm. not very good for the environment as far as water runoff is concerned that's what causes sometimes causes localized flooding mm-hmm. but as a nature point of view just green just a bit of grass in your front lawn is something Mm. but yeah yeah. although arguably i suppose for for certain species for bees or whatever you could concrete over your garden and have it full of flower pots and that would be more beneficial than having a plain lawn that's got no flowers in it overall it's just about the diversity that Mm. your little patch of land offers and how that 
kind of contributes and interacts with the other the other diversity that is in the surrounding area because mm. it's 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 good to have a patch of grass if you're in an area that's just forest but if you're in an area that's forest it that's all grass then it's better to have trees you know you need to mix and match with what types mm. of diversity and what plants and organisms you have in the environment in order to make it kind of well-rounded for a, a healthy ecosystem yeah i'm just thinking again about because i've been to a couple of stewart's talks and one thing he says to right nearly the end of the talk is to go up if you live in a two bed two two floor house mm. is you go up to the foot you go up to the, the second floor you look out your bedroom window you look at what your your next door neighbors are doing and you do exactly different to what they're doing right because yeah. it, it but like that but something that complements it but something yeah. different yeah. Different, yeah. 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 Okay, the last question in this uh, podcast. This is Pete's. It is. My question is, is eating animals bad for the environment? Okay, are we all vegetarian here? Oh, no, Mer- Megan? Kate isn't, because <laughs> yeah. you ate a bacon sandwich yesterday. Yeah, I did. I'm, I'm, no, no. I'm like a sort of, like, theoretically a vegetarian, but I, I do eat meat, like, on an irregular basis. Mm. What are you? What, what about you guys? You're both vegetarians. I'm pescatarian. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, so, I'm pescatarian all the time, and sometimes not even that. Yeah, I think that I'm probably about ten percent pescatarian, seventy-five mm. percent vegan, the rest of vegetarian, oh, wow, almost. Okay. So, um, just purely, just how my diet has evolved. It wasn't sort of like a quick, quick, quick sort of decision, but okay. yeah. Why do I Stuart? What do you ask that question? Are you a, first of all, are you a vegetarian? Uh, no, I'm probably okay. a pescatarian. Oh, well. okay. Yeah, a pescatarian yeah. is a pescatarian. Yeah, a pescatarian. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the most uh, difficult. I mean, I read a book, uh, it's behind me oh, on yeah, the shelf. Uh, it was by Colin Tudge. Mm. Lives near uh, Binsey in Oxford. The founder of Oxford Real Farming Conference. Pretty much. And uh, he, he wrote a book, and in there it said that. Um, We've got 9 billion people on the planet or something, or 7.5 becoming 9 or something, I don't know, something like that. And um, we're short of food. But he was saying we actually grow enough cereal crops Mm. to feed the entire planet. Mm. But the majority of cereal crops is actually fed to animals that feed only a small population Mm. of the world. Mm. I thought that was uh, quite a stunning fact. Uh, and the other thing is the, the, the industry of pro- and the way of producing meat is very uh, unsustainable on the environment. And that's why, um, I mean, uh, Kate's the probably 11th intern that I've had with me from Oxford University. It's probably the first one that's been a meat eater. That's interesting. You know, seems that most people in Oxford University seem to be um, vegans. I think... Well, it's probably the student population as a whole is mm. probably more or the percentage of vegetarians and vegans in students is probably higher than on average in the population i mean i i, de- I certainly know more vegetarians and vegans that have become that since be- coming to university mm-hmm. um mm. compared to being at home i mean it's cheaper yeah. apart from anything else isn't it yeah. you save money by not eating mm. meat yeah although i'd say maybe with being vegan it's obviously kind of quite difficult initially um, life choice for some, like, like mm. for some, I mean, I obviously not vegan, but it seems like a harder choice to 
to get round the way of like getting the proteins and things and yep. knowing what to buy and I don't know. And you miss it as well, obviously. That's a big thing, isn't it? Yeah. If you like eating meat, then you've suddenly got this massive hole in your diet that you're trying to like fill with whatever it might be, corn or tofu or whatever, mm. which generally doesn't taste as good. Well, for me, it became a gradual, came from a gra- very gradual process. So it came from not eating meat out. I didn't, we didn't eat meat. Me and my wife didn't eat meat when we went out right. eating somewhere, out right. to a restaurant or anything like that. And it came slowly, that was a gradual process. Then it was at home, then it was not and what was this. What was the initial reason? For not uh, eating meat when for me, out. it was particularly red meat, uh, mm. processed meat. I didn't think it was particularly healthy to eat too much processed mm, okay. meat. So um, it was health reasons, first of all? For me, it was anything. health reasons. For my wife, it was um, animal welfare reasons. It always has been. So we, have, we had different motivations, in a way. Mm. But it was a very gradual process. But you're right, if you go from being somebody who eats steak every day or eats meat every day and then go straight to veganism, that would be... That would be be very hard on your body yes. as well. You have to be very careful with that as well. Yeah. But is it is it bad for the environment, the meat production? It certainly has an impact, doesn't it? I mean, I know that cows produce a certain amount of methane. Mm. They, they produce, they're, they're one of their biggest contributors to the to greenhouse gases because of the methane they produce. I feel like I've read that, that livestock production produces more greenhouse gas than aviation, but that may be wrong. But it's certainly significant, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you're a geography student. What's well, the answer? <laughs> the answer? I'd, I mean... Well, the police are coming. <laughs> they're going to tell us. Um, I don't know. I think similarly to what I was saying, the first question, it's the mm. rate at which um, mm. humans are kind of doing things that is the biggest problem. And so the rate at which we're eating meat and the rate at which we're kind of causing extensions in the same way, it's just unsustainable. Mm. And that I wouldn't say that eating meat is... a a huge like if, if one person ate a, ate a steak it wouldn't massively impact the environment but if you know seven billion people are all eating steaks for dinner mm. it's gonna it's going to and that's it's the rate and the sustainability of it that is the problem so we've said uh diversity in in plants that are growing is good for the environment mm. so are we saying a diversity in our diets across the world is good for the environment, well, not rule out meat altogether. Well, as humans, we are omnivorous. We can eat anything. That's the reason why we are survivors. Well, I remember though. a bloke eating a metal aeroplane when I was a kid. Mm. So you can eat anything. Yeah. You, you can literally, we can eat anything, can't we? Mm. Apart from metal planes, really. That would be a good way to help the environment, <coughs> eating all the planes. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, we are we are an omnivorous species. We don't have to rely on meat. We're not like a cat. You can't feed a cat. You have to have, cat has to have meat because mm. it's carnivore. Mm. Whereas a dog doesn't have to have meat, it's, it can survive pretty well without meat What do you well. feel, this is a side point, but what do you guys think about, you know the uh, environmentalists who say that we shouldn't keep cats because they kill birds, because no. they kill garden birds? I kind of feel like that's ridiculous. I've, I've, I've heard that the stats are not really that high. I think generally it's a bit, it's a bit like, um, well, they, they, really go, they really catch the ill the old okay. and the young. Right. Cats actually quite often have, the, they're very well, if, if, a, if a cat's very well looked after, very well fed, mm. the hunting instinct will be there, but it won't be anywhere near as if it was actually hungry and wanted right. to have food. The hunting instinct will always be there. Hunting instinct's always stronger than actually actually need for food because, yes. because of evolution, right? 
Um, but uh, yeah, I've, as far as I heard, and maybe also because I'm coming from the, the point of view of a cat owner as well. Yeah, same here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that I've, uh, well, my two cats have never killed a bird in their entire life. I can guarantee that. Oh, really? Because they've never been outside. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. If, if you count, if you count the landing outside my flat, that that's as far as as far as one of my cats been. Okay. Okay. But yeah, that's just yeah. Okay, so how do we, um, with with the meat production, how mm. do we convince people to maybe, you know, not cut meat out of their diet, but mm. not eat it quite so often? I, I, one thing that struck me as well was also the mass production of meat is also producing bad quality meat. It's mm. going to produce worse qualities, not not so nowhere near as nutritious as if you bought like. Like there's local a local uh, local um, farms produce mm. you know that maybe that that animal has been humanely slaughtered haven't been it hasn't been massly mass slaughter mm-hmm. they haven't, they haven't, they've been in a very relaxed environment rather than being very stressed the meat is better quality so you could almost say that actually you know well, I'm going to have meat less but when I do have it I'm going to give it a good quality meat but I'm going to go for the better quality of the local organically produced mm. and also the offshot of, offshot of that of course is you're also supporting a local supply, supplier as yeah well. I feel for a lot of people certainly for me having meat in every meal was was habit more than anything else it's just because you grow up having some kind of meat with every meal and it feels weird to have a meal without it and I think that's partly why I'm pescatarian because I don't think I'd have struggled a hell of a lot more, definitely. I don't know if I'd have managed without fish, you know, just because it it becomes such a natural part of your yeah, of your routine, life. Really, mm. you, think, you couldn't give up fish and chips, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely couldn't. Yeah, I what, think do you, what do you think? Just, I mean, because obviously I am a meat eater, and mm. I would say like I, I, I do consciously try to eat less meat than I may have done maybe at home or in the past, but I I haven't kind of gone a step further, even though I I. In my head, I know the problems with it and everything. I just haven't gone that step further. But I feel like, if if it was easier, if like I if I if I knew the kind of I don't know, it's just such a routine and easy mm. easy to slide into. You know, if you're tired yes. of just going home and making some dinner quickly, you're gonna yeah. just kind of do the easiest thing that comes to mind. Whereas it might not be the easiest, the actually easiest and cheapest thing to do because it probably isn't. You know, you could much maybe much easy easier create a vegetarian meal. Than yeah, certainly cheaper. Meal. Yeah, definitely. But it's just what you're used to, and I feel mm. like because mm. there's your there's your sort of daily morale, and if you're like if you're going to university every day or you're working or whatever it is, then the extra imagination and effort and thought it takes to come up with meals that are vegetarian or vegan that you don't end up feeling depressed about, yeah. and you're not feeling so bored and fed up by the end of the week. It just it's that much extra drain on your sort of resources or whatever mm. on your yeah. mental powers. Yeah, I think, like I say, I think it really helps if you're ever thinking about doing this. And this seems like it's turned into a bit of a device show in a way. But if you're ever thinking about doing it, it's just do it in stages. Don't yeah. try and just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what we're talking about is breaking the habits. Yeah. But yeah. we're also talking about forming a new habit. And the new habit we want you to form is listening to this podcast on a regular basis. It's good for your health. It's good for the environment. Yeah. And it's uh, good for our ego. And it's good, good for discussion. Have a listen to this discussion. I think we've yeah. covered quite some interesting topics here, haven't we? Yeah. Have we so, made a difference tonight to the environment? Well, I think we've got ourselves thinking about it, and hopefully, uh, you guys out there who are listening will, will think about it, and then that's the first step. 
But who are we, William? We are the people's countryside. What is the people's countryside? You always put me on the spot, Stuart. I know, I love it. The People's Countryside is an online platform including TV, radio, podcasts. Uh, we're thinking about taking it on stage, uh, giving nature a voice in all its shapes and forms. Um, TV programme, for example, is, is, is getting um, local groups who, who really help the improve the state of nature and give them a voice and ask, let them ask, get them to ask a question of what they need in that particular line of work. Okay, so thanks Pete for coming out on a, such a warm night and giving up the opportunity to watch England play Colombia. I'm going to go and finish the rest of the match now. Oh yeah, really? Yes. And uh, thank you Kate, or is it <laughs> Megan? I don't know. Uh, Kate. Um, thanks very much. And uh, so Kate's with me for the rest of the week, so and no doubt there's going to be more creative material coming out there. Thank you for listening. And uh, a question we've got coming up in a future podcast is, is diversity good for us? I'm going to leave you with that thought. <laughs>